As we come now before the very word of God, if you'd like to read along with me, we'll be in the book of Matthew in chapter 1. This is the gospel according to Matthew in chapter 1. And before we read, would you please pray with me? Lord, we know in this Advent season we are, we are looking forward to the Savior who was born to us, who is Christ the Lord, and that this is good news of great joy. Help us to listen to the news that you would bring us today. And would you fill us with great joy through these things? Guide us by your Spirit. Help us to hear and to believe. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. This is Matthew in chapter 1. We have just a a couple uh, verses today, uh, but I'll be in Matthew chapter 1. We'll begin at the end of this long string of names, beginning in verse 16. Matthew chapter 1, verse 16. And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. This is the word of God. Now, I know this might seem like a a strange place for me to stop reading. It feels in some ways like I've stopped the text a little bit too early. I cut off the narrative before it even really gets going. You know, all the good stuff about Christmas is in in the verses that I didn't get to. You know, we've got Mary and Joseph and the angels and and baby Jesus, and and we will get to that, Lord willing, uh, starting next week. But when we get to the birth narrative you'll notice that Matthew, the author here of this gospel, does not include a number of things that we might expect about a birth announcement, at least today. You know, when a baby is born, you get the little card uh, that, that has a number of things on it, various details, that Matthew doesn't include. So one thing he doesn't include is, of course, a, a photo the baby, we're reading words here, but, there, but there's no record of how the baby Jesus looked. You know, Matthew doesn't say, he has his mother's eyes. He doesn't say, he has grandpa's nose. We have no idea how the Christ child looked. We also don't know his dimensions. For some reason, we seem to care uh, babies uh, pounds, ounces, and inches. Those are like uh, typical things that you report on a baby, and we, we don't get that here. There's also, notably, no record of, of the date. There's no time or day, no actual birthday mentioned for Jesus. 
We know the church began to celebrate Christmas, or the birth of Jesus, in December for a complex set of reasons, which is, which is just fine. Uh, but, but Matthew doesn't seem to care about what exact day it was. That's not his purpose. There are a number of things, though, that Matthew does mention. I'll mention just a, a few here. He notes Jesus' parents who the child was born to. And the child's not born to Mary and Joseph. This child is born to Mary and the Holy Spirit. A child who will be both, who is both human and divine. So we get a record of the parents. We also are told that the child is a son. It's a boy. I don't know if blue was the color back then, but there, there's a boy announcement. And even though Joseph is not this son's father, or uh, Joseph is not this son's father biologically, Joseph's adopted son, Jesus, is now going to take on Joseph's whole lineage and heritage as this firstborn son. But most importantly, at least important to us, uh, when, when a child is born, the most common question when, when, when a child comes to, into the world is, for us is, is often this, what is the name? What's the child called? And that's an important part here. We hear that the name, of course, is, is Jesus. He's also to be named Emmanuel. Uh, each of those, Jesus and Emmanuel, both have special significance, and we'll take those up, Lord willing, in later weeks. But Matthew not only gives attention to the name of the child, he gives special attention to the, the titles that function like names. So if you've been with us in, in previous weeks, you know we've already looked at, at just a few titles mentioned here in Matthew. At the very first sentence of the book, Jesus is called the son of David, and the son of Abraham, you remember. And as the son of David, he's the king over this house forever. As, as then the son of Abraham, he's the blessing to all nations. But there's a third title of Jesus in that very first sentence that is easy to gloss over and, and miss. If you're looking at your Bible, you can look with me. If you're just listening, you can listen. Here's the first sentence of the gospel. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Son of David, son of Abraham, that there's a third title in there. Did you catch it? Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ. Christ here is a title. That's not Jesus' last name. This is not Jesus Christ, son of Mary Christ and Joseph Christ. Christ his name is Jesus. His title is Christ. And Jesus and Christ are so connected that those two things, his name and his title, are virtually interchangeable. So if I were to get on, on a ship, I don't know when I'd be doing that, but maybe, maybe I would. If, I'm, if I, I get on a, on a ship and I meet the captain, Captain Jack, say, his name, of course, is Jack, but I might call him, the crew might call him Captain they might never say his name, Jack. They might just call him Captain. That's his title, but they use that as if it is his name. It's the same with Jesus. In the verses that I read here, we're, we're told that he's uh, called the Christ. 
or sometimes here he's just mentioned as the Christ. And this title, Christ, is just as important for us today as it was in Matthew's day. So the holiday that we're about to celebrate is called what? Christmas. Christmas. Not Jesusmas. And even for us as believers, we're not called Jesusians. We're called Christians. Christians. This is all built around this title of Jesus. So the fact that Jesus is the Christ is central to who he is and also then to who we are. So in the rest of our time, we want to look at three questions here that this brings up. The first is, what does the title Christ mean? Then, how is the title Christ applied to Jesus? And then, who calls Jesus Christ? What does the title mean? How is it applied to Jesus? And then, who calls him Christ? That's where we're headed. Let's get after it. First question. What does the title Christ mean? Little language lesson here. Christ comes from a Greek word, Christos, which, uh, by the way, Christos begins with the Greek letter chi. I can never get enough, uh, you know, juice in it, but uh, the Greek letter chi, which looks like an X, uh, which is why, by the way, you see Xmas. That's not people trying to get rid of Jesus. That's just a common old abbreviation to abbreviate Christ with just the first letter X. So at any rate, uh, the, so Christ is from this Greek word Christos, which is rooted in a Hebrew meaning in the Old Testament. So this, this meaning is spelled out a little bit by John, not John the Baptist, John the Apostle, the author of the Gospel. So when John is writing his Gospel, John is writing to a non-Hebrew-speaking audience, to just the regular average Joes of his culture. So he clarifies the connection, the old Hebrew connection with the word Christ when he's writing. So there's an account of these two guys Andrew and Peter, and, and they're brothers and soon-to-be disciples of Jesus, and Andrew meets Jesus. And, and he runs over and he tells his brother, hey, brother, come on, we found the Messiah, he says. And then John, the writer, adds in a little parenthetical, he says, which means Christ. We found the Messiah, which means Christ. So in other words, Messiah and Christ are virtually the same thing. They're just different language translations for the same thing. In fact, if you're reading the, the text that we read today out of a different translation, there's a pretty good chance that your translation might use the word Messiah instead of Christ here. At any rate, this still leaves us with the question, what does Messiah mean? Literally, Messiah or Christ, Christ means anointed one. That's what the word means. Anointed one. That helps us a little bit, but we still need to unpack what anointed means. 
Here's my rough definition of the Old Testament version of anointing. To be anointed is to be appointed to a particular holy purpose, usually with the ritual sign of oil. Got that? Should I say it again? To be anointed is to be appointed to a particular holy purpose, usually with the ritual sign of oil. Okay? That sounds uh, very pie in the sky here, but let's bring it down to earth just a little bit. We know what, what holy purposes look like. So in our house, we still have a whole bunch of leftover holiday candy. And all the parents in the room said amen. You know, that's just the way it's been. And too much, too much sugar for us to process. So the way we dealt with this is we we finally sat down and said, all right, each of you gets, we put all the candy in a pile and said, each of you gets to pick out 10 pieces. It's a lot. 10 sounds like a lot. And so we take turns. You pick one, and you pick one, then you pick one, then you pick one. All right, got your 10 pieces. Then we put those pieces in a Tupperware marked with the child's name, and no one is allowed to touch that candy but you. I could see the light in their eyes. This is mine. Nobody's going to eat it. Daddy's not going to eat it. Mommy's not going to eat it. Your sister's not going to eat it. This is anointed, set apart for a holy purpose. That's what that looks like, a silly modern-day example. But there were tons of things in the Old Testament that that could be anointed for a particular purpose. So we see occasions of of a stone pillar being anointed as a memorial for a particular event. Uh, We see uh, the tabernacle and all of its gear being anointed. So the tongs for the fire were anointed, I guess, so that you wouldn't go and use them for green beans, too. These are like tabernacle tongs, only for these purposes. We also see, you know, shields for war were sometimes anointed before battle. And even the, the most famous mention, at least the ones that we know, in Psalm 23, you know, the Lord is my shepherd psalm, the psalmist said, you anoint my head with oil. This anointing is a sign of a blessing from God. There's lots of reasons why a person could be anointed, but typically in the Old Testament, anointing happened for one of three reasons. A person was anointed as either prophet, a priest, or a king. And these were very particular people, the prophets, the priests, and the kings, the ones who were appointed to speak, to act, and to rule with all the authority of God. And they were anointed at a very particular time. Usually there was oil applied. This was the the visible, authoritative sign that they'd been set set apart for this purpose. So one example, the, the prophet Elisha, if I can find it, in 2 Kings, anoints Jehu the king, just a single verse in, in 2 Kings chapter 9. Uh, the Lord uh, says this, take the flask of oil and pour it on his head and say, thus says the Lord, I anoint you king over Israel. Sounds fairly straightforward, but let me point out a few things. The oil was to be poured on his head. A whole flask of oil. Uh, this this uh, word for anointing doesn't just mean pour, it means to smear 
or to spread. So, so this is not just a nice little delicate dainty drop of oil on the ear or behind the neck, you know. This is oil poured over the top of the head that's now running down the ears, down the beard, down the neck, all over the clothes. In fact, the, one of the psalmists writes about how an anointing makes the robes fragrant. That is, it seeps into your clothes. It'd be hard to wash out. You smell like the anointing. Which means this holy purpose that has been put upon you is not just your work. It's not just a job you do. It's partly that, but it's really who you are. Becomes part of you seeps into the pores of your skin. You begin to smell like this anointing. That's why when the Bible talks about Jesus' anointing, it doesn't just say he does the work of Christ. It says Jesus is the Christ. Now, how does this title of Christ, the Anointed One, apply specifically to Jesus? How is he set apart for holy purpose? Jesus' anointing is unique from other anointings in a few ways. One, because there's no oil. There's no record in his early days of being anointed with oil. That was the common way to do it, because there was no one of greater authority to come in and put the oil upon his head. So the apostles saw Jesus being anointed not with oil, but with the Holy Spirit at his baptism. They talk about this in Acts, that, he, that he's anointed with the Spirit. There's also no explicit discussion of what the anointing of Jesus was to do. You know, usually when a person's anointed, they're anointed to be something that carries out a particular task. So a prophet is anointed to speak the word of God. A priest is anointed to offer sacrifice to God. A, a king is anointed to rule in the power of God. Those people then carry uh, the titles of, you know, there's the, the prophet Isaiah, the priest Aaron, the, the king David, but none of them are called the anointed one. Jesus, however, is different. He's just generally called the Christ, the Messiah, the Anointed One. And there's no explicit discussion of what he's actually anointed to do. So it wasn't then until people saw his life played out, the whole of his life, including even his death and his resurrection. It wasn't until then that they were to look back and recognize that Jesus had been anointed to do all three, that he was to be the fulfillment of prophet, priest, and king, that this was all packed into that tiny little word, Christ. So our confession, uh, the Westminster Larger Catechism, Ask this very question, why was our mediator called Christ? And they answer it like this. Our mediator was called Christ because he was anointed with the Holy Spirit above measure. And so he was set apart and fully furnished with all authority and ability to execute the offices of prophet, priest, and king of his church in the estate of both his humiliation and exaltation. 
In other words, what's unique about Jesus' anointing is he's anointed to more than just one office. He's really anointed to be the fulfillment of them all. Now, third and final question. I almost skipped over this one, but I could not bear to let it go because this matters for us. Third, final question, and we'll take us through to the end. Who calls Jesus Christ? Who uses this title Christ for Jesus? Because it's not used of him by everyone all the time. You know, we use the title, and we should. It's probably the most common thing we call Jesus. We call him Jesus Christ. But we're not the only ones who do that. The, the, all the rest of the New Testament authors call Jesus Christ. You know, if you look at the first line of all of Paul's letters, he calls him Jesus Christ. And, it, and it's a prominent place in all the other New Testament letters, too. All the New Testament writers call Jesus the Christ. The gospel writers state that he's the Christ plainly. Matthew puts it very in the first sentence. John says, my whole purpose of writing is so that you will know and believe that Jesus is the Christ, he says. So the New Testament writers use it, the gospel writers use it, and the people who lived in the events of the gospel say it plainly. Jesus says, or Peter says, Jesus, you're the Christ. Martha says, Jesus, you're the Christ. Pilate says, this is Jesus called Christ. Even the demons refer to Jesus as Christ. So all of these people are referring to Jesus as the Christ, and yet there's one person, one, who we might expect to use the title Christ who doesn't, at least not plainly and not often. That person is Jesus himself. It is rare in the Gospels that we see Jesus himself connect himself to the title of Christ. He very rarely calls himself the Anointed One, and when he does, he's almost coy about it, kind of quiet, underhanded about it. It seems that way, at least. So it's common for Jesus to refer to himself in the third person with a bunch of Old Testament titles. Jesus calls himself the Son of Man. He calls himself I Am. He calls himself Lord and Master. Jesus is not shy about who he is. We also know that Jesus knows he's the Christ, that he's the Anointed One. He calls himself Christ to the guys he's talking with on the road to Emmaus after his resurrection. He calls himself the Christ to the woman at the well. She's saying, who, this Christ is to come. He says, I who speak to you am he. He affirms this in several personal interactions, but one of the most insightful ones that he has about this title Christ is later in Matthew's gospel in chapter 16. Let me read a few verses here. He's talking with his disciples. Matthew chapter 16, I'll pick up in verse 15. Jesus said to them, Who do you say that I am? Peter replied, You're the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona. For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. 
In other words, Jesus says, who, who am I? Peter, of course, speaks up first and says, you're the Christ. And Jesus says, yes, Peter. Yes, you got it. Not just you came up with this in your mind. This was revealed to you by God the Father. It's a wonderful thing. But then at the end of this whole interaction, he says in verse 20, then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. Wait, what? You know, first he says, yes, you got it. This is a big thing, you know. This is revealed by God. I am the Christ. I am the anointed one. Don't tell anybody. At least not yet. Why is that? You know, people have theorized about this for centuries. There's, there's one old German scholar that, uh, that 100 years ago came up with a theory called the Messianic Secret, secret about the Messiah. And according to his theory, the reason why Jesus rarely or secretly refers to himself as, as the Christ is because Jesus isn't the Christ, according to him. That Jesus never thought he was the Christ. That's something that the apostles just wrote back into the story later to kind of help build up Jesus and give him some credibility. But that, that whole theory about the messianic secret kind of fell apart got a little traction, but even today, now, even amongst non-Christians, almost no one holds to that theory. It just doesn't hold a lot of water. So why, then, is Jesus so quiet or even secretive, if we can call it that, about being the Christ? Jesus doesn't tell us all the reasons why he does what he does, so we have to tread lightly when he doesn't speak directly to things. But one of the most common reasons given by faithful scholars of the Bible, and I've become convinced of this as well, is that Jesus largely avoids the title of Christ during his life on earth. He largely avoids using the title not because it's untrue, not because it's unconfirmed. We have to wait and see if he's the Christ. Not, it's not that he's untrue, not that it's unconfirmed. It's because it's unclear, at least in the minds of the people at the time. That when some of the people in Jesus' cultural day heard the term Christ, they thought of a whole bunch of things, some of which were true and many of which were not. Let me give you a modern example of this. So, I have a name, Nathan, but I also have a title. Technically, I'm under the title Reverend, which still seems a little scary to me, even at times. But I'm often hesitant to, to mention or use that title Reverend. If I'm on a plane with someone and they ask what I do, sometimes I'm hesitant. Because that title, even as pastor, that title carries baggage for people. There's a load of assumptions that come along with someone being a pastor. Sometimes there are hurts from pastors, fears about pastors, some, maybe sometimes hopes, expectations. Some people think that powers have, or uh, pastors somehow have special powers or access to God that other people don't. There's, there's a lot of misunderstanding sometimes about what a pastor is or does. So I'm sometimes hesitant to use that title, not because it's untrue or unconfirmed, but because it's just unclear. 
So in a similar way, in Jesus' day, there were assumptions about what it meant to be the Christ, about what it meant to be the Messiah, and that, that public opinion was mixed with, with truth and error. Embedded into the culture were these set of flawed assumptions. And it would take a while to clarify what it actually means to be the Christ, what it means to be the one who's appointed to fulfill God's holy purposes for prophet, priest, and king. And so instead of Jesus wearing the badge of the Christ proudly and correcting everybody about what it ought to mean, Jesus waited patiently. He was in no rush to fast-talk who he is, to explain it and fix all of our expectations all at once. Now, let me drive this bus right into our living room. Even though we have the benefit of looking backward on history, have hindsight where we can look upon Jesus with a little more clarity than some in his day could, for us, we still carry baggage of expectations in relation to God. Some of it's true, some of it's not. We carry expectations of God, what we assume of him. Things that we hope or fear from him. Certain things that we expect God to be or to do or to say. We can't get rid of all of those expectations, but we can recognize that they're there and hold them lightly. So as we come now upon this Christmas season, when we come to this opening sentence of Matthew where he says, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way, that's an invitation to us. We're invited then to, to lay down the baggage of our assumptions, to take a seat at the feet of Jesus, close our mouths, and wait. To really listen to the Christ tell us who he is. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus Christ, we know that there are many things that are true of you that are still beyond us. Lord, but your word is true. Thank you for revealing yourself to us. Help us to see who you really are so that we would come to worship and praise you for all of these things. We know that we also have been set apart for holy purposes that you will accomplish. Lord, would you work those things in us even now according to your good purpose? We trust you, and we give you praise in Jesus' name. Amen.